This choir podcast is brought to you by the story of Christianity told as good news for all. I'm Rick Machuga, and I'm a Christian. When I was young, I thought there were two classes of people, those who were saved because they freely chose to believe, and those who were damned because they freely rejected God. In middle age, I still thought there were two classes of people, the saved and the damned. Only now, I thought in terms of God's sovereign right to do whatever he damn well pleased. Now I'm old, and I still believe there are two classes of people. First, there are those who are saved, and they already know it. Second, there are those who are saved. It's just that they don't yet know it. A few weeks ago in church, we sang about the reckless love of God. How it chases me down, fights till I'm found, saves the 99. This song, this chorus, perfectly sums up my little book, the story of Christianity told as good news for all. You can get it at Amazon today, and thanks for listening. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is not church. With John and Nat Turney. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Uh, my name is Nat Turney. I am uh, with my brother in the hangout, as always. Um, John is uh, currently probably still snowed in in the uh, the mountains of Northern California. He's wait, like kind of, eh, eh. yeah, kinda. we had like like fifteen feet of snow in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, you know, it's been interesting. I actually drove my son's car because he's the, he has the car with the best tires right now, and okay. I was actually able to make it from my house to the barn before I got stuck. And then I was stuck for about 15 minutes trying to figure out a way to get back down to the house. <laughs> oh, man. First so, world so problems. Close, so close. I mean, like, we're talking like I could almost see the road. Man. Well, as always, we're glad that you're here. And I should say something like, say, uh, walking in a winter wonderland, John. Walking in a winter wonderland, John. John. <laughs> that was lame on my on my part. By the way, I don't I don't I, I can't put that on you. But um, this is the uh, this is the podcast, you guys. This is uh, uh this is what we've called. This is not church because if it was church, um, what John? You would have left by now. Yeah, and you'd be right. Um, we'd be with you. But hey, um, as always, we have an awesome guest because nobody wants to hear just John and I talk. We're yeah, talking with no. Matt Stefano at his house at his book release party, and um, we said something about guests, and he's like, ah. Having guests on your pod, on a podcast is terrible. I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, it's just complicated. And I'm like, yeah, but nobody wants to hear John and I just talk for an hour. Uh, our, <laughs> our downloads, when we do that, prove that out, by the way. So <laughs> it's always better when we have somebody interesting to talk to. But And we get to have the, the honor of having somebody back with us. So today we have Josh Lawson. I love having people back. In fact, I've got a list of people I want to have back to continue talking. But Josh is one uh, who we've stayed um, in contact with just partly because we just really believe in what he's doing and partly because he says yes. So, hey, um, <laughs> it's, always, it's always a, you know, a, an important part of the equation, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, I've been trying like the Dickens to get uh, Baxter Kruger back and he keeps saying yes, but lo and behold, he has not come back. So Baxter, if you're listening, this is, this is for you. Re- return my email. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll refresh you guys about Josh, and then we're going to jump in to talk about his new book. But this is us. Uh, so Josh Lawson, <clears throat> beg your pardon, uh, lives with his family in Wheelers, Wheelersburg, Ohio, where he serves his community in a variety of roles as a recovery program coordinator for the Shawnee State University Cricker Innovation Hub. 
He uh, works to, re- uh, to connect people in recovery with entrepreneurial skills and services that will help them succeed in life. He also chairs the faith-based sub-community of uh, Seattle Connect. I probably said that wrong. If I did, you can correct me. The county's local opioid consortium where he consults with faith communities on how to support people who use drugs and those in recovery. As an author, he recently published his first book, The Face of Addiction, which tells the story of 12 people in Southern Ohio who've been impacted by the opioid and overdose crisis. In his follow-up book, Drugs and Jesus, which is set to release, I think, in April of this year, uh, will be the first of its kind to present a call to action for people of faith to engage in the work of harm reduction. So that is that is him in a nutshell, a very small nutshell. There's very much more to that. But welcome back to the podcast, Josh. What's up, man? Well, what's up, guys? It's a pleasure to be with you, as always. Oh, it's been great, man. We uh, we had a chance to to peruse your your new book before it comes out, and that's always that's always a great deal of fun, isn't it, John? It's fun to get a hold yeah. of books, yeah. You know, prior to. In fact, I have one waiting at the house right now from somebody. I have no idea. I just got a UPS notification that something had been delivered. My wife says, I think you got a book. And I'm like, sweet. I'm ho- uh, well, this will be, a, be this one from the one that we hate with the, that we can't talk about yet. Oh, we can talk about it. Come on. We can talk about it. So we, we've been in, t- in contact with uh, the publicist for the woman's name. I can't remember, but she's a hundred. Sister Jean. Sister she's 103. Jean, she's a 103 year old nun who is currently the, the chaplain. chaplain for Loyola men's college basketball team. She she rose to uh, rose to fame last year during March Madness because they won the March Madness, right? Loyola College. Sure, I believe Let's go so. with that. Just, so. I'm gonna, all I'm going to show is how 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 badly I follow college sports. Well, um, I, mean, I, I you know I like to you know you can't see it, but over here is my my bookshelf, and the top the whole top shelf is dedicated to books of authors that we have spoken to. Oh, that's cool. So, I mean, I, I find it, you know, it's an honor to be able to talk to people like Josh, you know, and be able to uh, be able to see their book prior to publication, uh, you know, offer some insight sometimes, or just just allow us to be part of the, the, the pre-launch team and, and you know, kind yeah. of, right? And so... Um, you know, when someone like, you know, like Josh Lawson asks us to read his book, I mean, I'm honored, you know, there's, there's no other way around to say that other than, you know, it's an honor to be able to be one of the people that is asked to read a book prior to it, its publication. And anyone who has ha- been allowed to be part of that understands that it's, it's, there is a feeling of like, you, you get a, like a special connection to the book. Yeah. And, absolutely. Uh, and, and it's almost like, you get you want you want to see it succeed too. You want you want to be you want to go along for the ride and watch this this book succeed because you are you're you're like a little invested, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Before we, before we jump in, I want to say one thing and then we'll go. Um, what I, what I love about what you do, Josh, is uh, first of all, I just think I just don't think there's enough people doing it. True. So it's refreshing. On the one hand, it's really refreshing to see books like this being written and published. But the other thing it makes me aware of is how little we know about addiction, uh, especially, and how little it seems like in the church we actually seem to care. But but on the on the whole, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that that it was very educational for, for I think for me, and I think I'm I'm representative of a lot of people that like this is just not something that we talk about a ton. So. With that being said, um, maybe walk us through a little bit about what the book deals with and maybe some of the what you hope to accomplish. Yeah, sure. So Drugs and Jesus is a follow-up of sorts to my first book, which was mainly just a collection of stories uh, that wasn't at all centered upon you know, my perspective or my work so much as it was uh, the individuals that I interviewed there 
who told their story of uh, lived experience uh, and how their lives were, or the lives of someone they loved, were uh, upended in the early days of the opioid crisis here in central Appalachia, where I live. So I live just outside of a little town called Portsmouth, Ohio, that is pretty wildly regarded as one of, if not the epicenter of the rural opioid crisis in America. Uh, the original pill mill doctor uh, who set up this very simple business model, which was basically selling prescription for prescription pain pills for cash, um, was an old family friend of mine. I spent the night at his house. I played ball with his boys. And he set up a model that made himself and other doctors like him a lot of money, uh, but uh, not always intended. But, you know, either way, did a lot of, did a lot of damage, a lot of harm along the way. And that was over a decade ago, though. Um, things have changed since then. The situation is, is evolving every year, it seems like. Uh, federal government, state regulators come in, they shut down the pill mills, and then street heroin, what they called hillbilly heroin at the time, uh, came in, flooded the streets. A uh, national um, uh, journalist by the name of Sam Canones documented that uh, in a book called Dreamland that features downtown Portsmouth, which is, which is my hometown here, telling the story of how it started here and spread really throughout the country in a lot of ways. And right now, what we're facing, though, is uh, fentanyl. Fentanyl is, uh, is a highly potent opioid, synthetic opioid painkiller that is being cut in pretty much any substance you can think of on the street, even non-opioids like cocaine, methamphetamine, whatnot. And what this has done is caused the accidental overdose rate to skyrocket, really through the roof. Um, now, accidental drug overdose kills more people over the age of 50 or I'm sorry, under the age of 50 than any other, any other calls, which is insane when you think about it. But it doesn't get, it doesn't get a lot of airplay, you know, in media and a lot of outlets and at least not a lot of positive um, airplay when it comes to humanizing the folks who have suffered most. So following up on that book, I've written Drugs and Jesus in an attempt to kind of bridge the gap between uh, faith communities, churches, people of faith, pastors, church leaders, you name it, whomever has influence in that world and in the world of harm reduction. And that's, that's a term that's not um, very well known in a lot of circles, uh, very well understood. And where it is, it's, it's not always looked unfavorably. But it's basically looking at policies and practices that society can implement to try to reduce the harms associated with substance use. And not just substance use, war on drugs, which when you really get it uh, down underneath it is more of a war on people who use drugs uh, that's doing just as much harm uh, as good. In, in a lot of ways, and that's been well documented by other folks. But to my knowledge, this book is the first of its kind to try to build a bridge between the faith, the world of faith, the faith community, specifically ch churches, Protestant churches, evangelical churches, because that's that's all up in my neck of the woods. That's that's what we are down here, and um, people who are serving those who use drugs. Uh, so hopefully, we can save some lives. That's 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 the essence of it, and providing kind of a theological framework, a very basic, a very beginning of a, of a theological framework for Christians who might feel you know, moved with compassion, who, who, who want to kind of get involved in, in providing solutions to this problem in their communities, but have no idea where to start and feel that they, they feel a need, you know, to have this somehow tied to their faith in order to motivate them to, you know, really hammer down and enter into this kind of work. So that's, that's the book in a nutshell. Real quick, I, I, I would like to ask a question because there's a, there's a pretty big, you know, air quotes, fentanyl problem within my area, you know, it, is it is it something? You know, I also live in a rural area, right? The, the largest city in my county is twenty eight thousand people, so it's not a very big. I mean, one hundred fifty thousand people in our in our whole county, so it's it's a very small population. But it seems like 
the fentanyl problem within this county is is pretty high, pretty pretty big. Do you see that is it is more of a, a rural area problem, or is it just that we we live in these rural areas and we just see it as from our own from, from our own perspective, our own point of view, and it, but it's more of a nationwide problem. But we only see it within our our small communities. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, what's what's commonly called the opioid crisis now, which is more aptly called the, the overdose crisis, because it's not just opioids we're dealing with. Like I said, fentanyl's being cut in everything you can think of. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways, it started in rural areas and it's spread throughout rural areas in a way that, you know, folks who are familiar with like, you know, the crack cocaine epidemic of the 80s, right. that was more urban centered. You know, the, the one of the unique right. features of this this wave of the opioid crisis, because it's not the first in American history, is that it's been largely featured and, and, and sprung out of rural areas like ours. Like it sounds like a small county, mine's even smaller. And we were we were the heart of it here in a lot of ways, but fentanyl it's it's nationwide now for sure, and it's 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 in it's everywhere, it's in everything because it's so cheap, it's so readily available, it's easy to smuggle across the border, things you know things of that nature, and like I said, it's very very potent. So just to give people a point of reference, and this is a very rudimentary way of putting it, but it's often used. You know, you've got back in the pill mill days, you had oxycontin, and then you've got street heroin. Uh, which is like they say, fit maybe fifty times more potent than morphine, which you know you might you might get after surgery, you know, in the hospital. Uh, fentanyl is fifty times more potent than heroin, right? And then some of its analogs or synthetic uh, derivatives, uh, carfentanil and others, are are even more stronger than that. So it can act very very quickly on a person's respiratory system. You know, before the first responders even get there, if there's a call of an overdose, you know, they can already be gone because it's it's, it's that effective, right? right? Well, and fentanyl's a fentanyl's a pharmaceutical grade drug, right? I mean, this is something that I, I mean, um, my daughter was in the hospital for several months, and she was uh, in a medically induced coma, and one of the drugs they gave her was fentanyl. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, because it's, it's, it's a paralytic. It's a mm-hmm. it's a powerful, powerful one of the worst things I've ever seen, and the closest I've ever gotten to like one on one experience with addiction was them weaning her off of all of the hardcore narcotics when she started to come out of her medically induced coma. And uh, that scared the hell out of me, you know. And she was in a very controlled environment, and so, you know, they were able to do things the best way they knew how, but it was still uh, very traumatic. Probably one of the more traumatic things that she endured in the hospital was coming off of those drugs and dealing with the um, withdrawal and all those things. But um, I had a question, too, though. So when we talk about, um, we talk about a war on drugs, Talk talk me through like the socioeconomics of this too, because it seems like some of these some of these drugs have sort of ripped through lower income parts of our culture because they are so they're so damn cheap, right? I mean, I mean, on, on the whole, fentanyl can be can be had for relatively, you know, especially since it's so potent for relatively small amounts of money versus you know, you know, I remember being a kid in the '80s and cocaine was like the rich guy drug. Because it was, you know, so all the all the all the upscale white guys that were like stockbrokers and crap, they all did coke, and then drugs like crack come in, and drugs like you know these these synthetic opioids come in, and seems like they kind of target lower socioeconomic folks. Is that is that ring true, or is that just something that I'm that I'm that I no, think? That's, that's definitely run through throughout history. I mean, when you really, if you look back the history of the war on drugs, you know, when they when we first began to criminalize substances in America. It was specifically targeting minority populations, Chinese immigrants, um, black folks in the 80s, um, 
the anti-war hippies, you know, the lefties, you know, that, that's straight out of an, an, a Nixon era aide, presidential aide who said that, who admitted that much. And more recently in this wave too, um, like I said, the story's been well told, but, you know, some of the major pharmaceutical manufacturers and distributed, distributors specifically targeted areas like mine in central Appalachia because there was a high rate of, you know, chronic pain among, you know, retired mine workers who had, had broken right, their backs sure. all their life, you know, supporting their families. And they had these chronic health issues and this pain. And there was this push even on family physicians. You know, you've got to deal with people's pain. You've got to deal with the pain. Here's, here's a new drug. Give them this. And, um, you know, nobody saw what was coming in the wake of that. But yeah, there was a very definite targeting of poor country folk, in, in my, our case down here, uh, in the same way. So, you know, and, and how much of that was, was, was directly a result of the, you know, the, the federal government, the war on drugs. Some of it, it's been, sometimes it's been direct, other times it's indirect. But the, you know, the, the impact is always felt one way or the other, whether it's on the front end, you know, of, of targeting communities, or if it's on the back end of how we then respond to people who may have a substance use disorder. You know, we criminalize them, we punish them rather, and we isolate them from society instead of providing them the help, the connection, the things that they need, right? Yeah, no, for sure. It's, I mean, uh, John and I have talked to a few people who are involved in, say, like criminal justice reform, and that's always kind of high on their on their list of 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 issues. Is that for, I mean, you can go down to as simply as just like the 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 sentencing rates of people of color versus affluent white folks, you know, who go to jail, you know, far at a far less at a far less rate than people of color do, and sometimes for for a much you know, smaller offenses. So uh, they, they really demonize crack when all the, <laughs> when I like the, the aforementioned, you know, affluent stockbrokers were getting coked up every day and they still treat, you know, obviously we're, we're coming around from this, but I had treated marijuana even like that kind of, you know, felony, felony possession drug that whatever classification of drug that's in was in the same class as methamphetamine and other things like that. But um, when, it, when it comes to things, when it comes to this overarching theme of harm reduction, Walk me through, I mean, I, I think I, on his face, I kind of get it, but um, maybe walk us through what you mean by harm reduction. Is it, uh, well, I'll, I'll let you speak on that. Yeah. So it's as simple as it sounds. It's reducing the harms associated with substance use um, or, you know, society's response to it. You know, and in this case, the war on drugs, the criminal justice response. So that, that can be very simple. That can be as simple as providing access to certain life-saving tools like naloxone. That's, that's one I focus on you know, big time in the book because it's becoming more and more well-known, more accepted in, in, in our communities now. But naloxone is an opioid antagonist. What that means is um, it's, a, it's a medicine that will stop and reverse an overdose. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. And you can get it in an intermuscular form, you know, like inject in a shot, or you can get it in a nasal brand form. That's more popular, well-known. It's called Narcan. At least the popular brand name is. And literally, if somebody is dying of an overdose, if they're nodding off, if they're turning blue, if they're stopping breathing and they're heading over the precipice, you, you can hit them with that stuff and it will literally bring them back from the brink of death. So I focus on that as like a symbol in the book, right? Uh, Jesus saves, but so does naloxone. That's what I tell a lot of my <laughs> in the yeah. church world. So here, here, here's a very, very practical, tangible way you can put legs under your faith. You know, you, we, we say we're a people who believes in and hope and the power of resurrection, you know, and we symbolize that in the cross and, and our faith in Christ. Here's a way you can show that. You can demonstrate that in your communities among the most vulnerable folks. We, and we don't have to stop and moralize about anybody's choices. We don't got to preach at them. We don't got to do anything. We can just support their well-being 
We can do our, what we can to keep them healthy and keep them alive in the hope that they will live you know, wonderful, flourishing lives into recovery. If that's if that's the thing, if they do need help with an addiction, whatever. Uh, but the, the 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 bare bones of it is, there is no hope for recovery, for redemption, for any of that. If a person's dead, that's game over. Yeah, and and so I, I find that interesting. Yeah, that. Um, so, and, and I know state by state, right? There's certain regulations on Narcan, um, just by using the 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 more I think noticeable name of it. I think more people understand what Narcan is. I think across the board. I, I'm a former uh, volunteer firefighter, right? So just as I was leaving the department, Narcan was becoming something that was going to be used by our department, which unfortunately for a very long time was being really pushed to the side by certain firefighters because uh, the argument was that what you because like exactly what you said, Narcan, what, what it does is it reverses the effect of whatever, right? What like the fentanyl or the opiate that they're taking. And so the, 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 the negative to that, I guess, if you want, if you want to, if you want to see that other side is it, it actually puts them right into, a, um, I'm losing my words. Um, withdrawal. Thank you. Uh, so they are, they're instantly from their high to a withdrawal, right? And so they can be, they can become combative from time to time uh, because you just took away their $50 high or whatever they paid for whatever they just, you know, ingested it or injected or however they took it, right? So, you know, unfortunately, some uh, the fellow firefighters are like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to be put into that position. I don't want to have to fight somebody. Uh, that's, from my understanding, actually uh, a small case. In comparison to the people that uh, just come out of it, and you you have a chance to save them, right? Um, so, unfortunately, I, I don't know if state by state, if everyone you know everyone can get Narcan and be, can be trained on it to carry it themselves. I don't. You would know better than I do um, which states allow that, which states don't. But the bigger the overarching thing is that, like you were saying, that most Christians are like, well, we need to save these people. Well, we can't save them if they're dead. Right? So if we can if we can get a larger population to use and accept Narcan as a way to get them out of that overdose. And believe and, and this has nothing to do with your belief on if someone needs to be saved or not, but most evangelical fundamentalists believe that you have to ask for salvation before you go to heaven, right? Doesn't it make sense that you'd want to use this to give them a chance before they are dead? Yeah, yeah. Kind of, kind to of be hard saved, to get saved, right? you know, when you're yeah. dead. And, and I think that's a, it's a really good argument for these people who are like, well, these people are, are they can't be helped. Um, they're, they're so far gone. Well, yeah, but Jesus, first of all, tells you to, to go out and, and show the love of, of God. And you can't do that if these people are dead. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line, right? It is. Yeah, and that's very simple. And that's very hard to argue against. I mean, some people will try to argue against it, um, but their arguments are poor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. You know, I have a, I have a friend, uh, you know, fellow, he's a pastor. He's a firefighter as well. That's his, that's his day job. And, uh, you know, they're, they're bringing people back all the time. And he, he tells me about it. And I've, I've heard about it from many others. Compassion fatigue is a very real thing that happens among first responders. So I, I get it. I understand it. But, you know, when it's my son or daughter who's out, 
I'm going to bring him back and I hope he comes back up swinging at me. You know? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I mean, come on. What are we talking about here? You know, we got to get beyond these uh, very simplistic uh, views of what's going on here and get really get at the heart of the matter, which is what I try to do in the book and really open up from the perspective of faith, from the perspective of Jesus, from the perspective of scripture, which is, you know, very much pro-life, right? And I try even to appeal to people, uh, my audience, at least down here, which is a lot of social conservatives who, who pride themselves on being pro-life, that, hey, if you're going to be pro-life, this is a part of it. You know, this is not just something we can relegate to, you know, the unborn in the, in the instance, which, which it most pop, most often is. But, you know, to be consistent, we have to have an ethic of human life that goes from the womb to the tomb. And so regardless of what state a person finds themselves in, regardless of their choices, regardless of, of what you agree or disagree with about their life, they're made in the image of God. And for that reason alone... We honor that image and we seek to preserve their life and protect it in the hope and the potential of God knows what. That's up to them. That's up to them and God, right? All change is self-determined. Uh, but we have an obligation. We have a calling. We have a duty. We have, however you want to frame it, we have this uh, within us, uh, this motivation of our faith to um, see that and to respond to it. At least we see that in Jesus. At least we see that, hear that in the call. So if we're going to say that we're Christians, if we're going to say that we're people of faith, then Here's how this applies in the midst of a national overdose crisis of unprecedented, you know, rate and level. Um, we've got to respond to this, and this is how we can do it. Yeah. Well, and, and sadly, um, and and and, it, and it's it, it kind of does suck that you have to put it in these terms. So, with you know, with with drugs outside of legalization, with no control over how the drugs are administered, issued, or anything, it's 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 literally a Russian roulette. Right. So fentanyl can be taken as a pill. That's one of the ways it can be taken. It can be, and it can look as if it's a pill that is something you've normally taken because it is not controlled. So unfortunately, and I, and I hate that we have to use this and try to push people on the, on the, on the edges who are like not understanding what we're asking them to see is this could be your daughter. This could be your son in a moment of like, at a party, uh, they decide to take a pill because they get pressured into it, and it's the one that's a, it's it's the one with the bullet in the chamber because it's not regulated. There is no regulation on it, and I and it's and it hurts to have to use that excuse because I think it's a much broader and much bigger problem, and we're and we're trying to appeal to people who don't see this as something other than criminalization, right? But we, but we have to like get them into their head. This, this could be their son. This could be their daughter in a moment of weakness and a moment of like stupidity. And it, that unfortunately has to be some, sometimes the way we have to talk with these people, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a big part of harm reduction as well is just education, right? And right. We're, not, we're not big on that in America, whether it's harm reduction in, in regards to like sure. sex or drug use or whatever it is, we're, we're absolutely it here. We're, we're still riding the Puritan wave, right? You just don't do it, kids. Yeah. You just don't do it. Right. You just say no. Just say no. We don't, we don't like to teach them about sex or math or science. We or don't drugs. Like no. no. So, so harm reduction is, yeah, having that hard conversation with your kids, which I've done it. I continue to do it because it's not just a person who has a severe addiction to drugs who's at risk here. Recreational users are at risk here. I mean, it was a few months ago. We I, I saw a news report out of uh, Ohio State University, which is here uh, a couple hours north of me. Um, a couple college students, just like you said, there. 
Uh, they were they were up late. I don't know if they were studying or partying. You know, they, they took what they thought was a party drug, and it had fentanyl in it. Boom, game over. You know, I, I don't want that to be my kid. I don't want that to be anybody's kid. So we we have to speak about these things and we have to educate. Yeah, it seems it seems like, you know, I, I think I could kind of guess what some of the arguments would be and some of the pushback would be. Because I've heard, you know, I've heard a lot of this over the years, but, you know, when we begin to blame shift, right? And we begin to say, well, hey, these guys made their own choices and they did how, why should we put resources into this? But I, I would think that's got to be one of the first mindsets that has, just has to go, right? I mean, it's like at that, at the point of whether someone's going to live or die, how they got there makes little, little, makes little to no difference, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to be able to use the framework of scripture, specifically the gospels, the, the example and the teaching of Jesus, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's money. You know, it's so easy to do. The framework is there. Nobody's ever really looked at it, though, in this way. Not at least nobody that I know, which is why I wrote this book. I mean, you look at stories Jesus told, like, you know, the woman who was taken in adultery. You look at the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. These stories Jesus is telling to illustrate points and saying, look, you, you, lo- you want eternal life? Love God with all your heart. You don't know what that means? Here's what it means. When you come across somebody in need, help them. Don't ask how they got there. Don't lecture them on why, why they made a choice that wound up in the ditch on the side of the road to Jericho. Just do what you can to help them. This is how you love God, and this is how you have eternal life. You know, so... Well, yeah, it seems like across, yeah, it, it, across the board in his parables, that's the one thing that's missing that we, that we specifically within the Western evangelical church, evangelical church has added, is this moralization that we feel needs to be added. You don't see that in any of Jesus' parables, right? You don't see him saying, okay, now that we have had this conversation, now let's talk about all the bad things you've done. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen on any of them. Well, it's the, very, one, the, the closest you can get um, is in the story of the woman caught in adultery. Um, at the end of that story, he tells her, now go and sin no more. And then most Bibles, if you pay attention, have an asterisk and a footnote by that last line that say that's not found in the earliest manuscripts. So it seems like at some point someone said, oof, I mean, we might need to add a little something about, hey, you know, we let this one go, but the next one's not going to be so good. Um, very, very little chance that's an authentic, that's, that that's an authentic saying of Jesus. I think the story ends with, neither do I judge you. Because it's, because it's consistent with the other stories, right? I mean, the woman, caught, the woman at the well who is admittedly involved in all these different relationships, she just doesn't moralize. You know, there's none of that judgment. And then, you know, so it doesn't seem to be in Jesus's character to, to care how they got to that moment of decision. I think the point you're making is we'd like people to survive long enough to get to that moment of decision and, you know, not die as a result of a, of a mistake. Or if it helps you Christians out there, there's a lot of people who are, who are getting slipped this drug by accident. They don't know. Right. I mean, I have, I have, I have read certain reports that, that fentanyl, like you said, is being laced. Uh, it's not always knowingly. Um, they've even found, you know, fentanyl laced in, in marijuana. And so you think you're just going to go get high and you get dead instead. It's a crisis, right? I mean, this harm reduction thing I think is, is, is critical, but I have a question for you then. And this may not, I don't think your book deals with this, but from the standpoint of harm reduction, I think we can, I think we can branch this out and talk about all kinds of things. Cause this is, I th- I'd like to see us take this tack even as a first step towards, towards dealing with people in other marginalized communities, you know, because the Christian church is moralized on so, so much for so long that there's harm being, being doled out to all kinds of people. 
I think if we can get people on board with simply viewing people as humans of worth, <laughs> we could maybe take a step back from this stuff. So I think your work has far more, I mean, it's obviously going to have impact on, on the intended audience, but I think there's an application for it outside of that as well. And that's what I think is so important about it. So just food for thought. No, I agree 100%. And uh, a lot of the content of the book can be used in that way. I bring it all back to you know people who use drugs because that's the crisis I'm referring to here. That's, that's what's closest to home right now in my communities. Um, but I do explore some concepts throughout the book. One that runs throughout, uh, is, you know, for instance, you know, the theological other, you know, which is anybody who's outside of our circle of, of influence or our circle of what we deem to be, you know, God's favor, you know, relating that to Jesus's Jewish disciples and now to Christians today and how, you know, historically churches and faith communities have taken a, um, a moral high horse, you know, approach. We, you know, we speak to our communities more than we listen to them which is the opposite posture of servanthood, which Jesus, you know, said should characterize his disciples. So this general call, you know, just to get down in the dirt, as Jesus did with the woman in adultery, before he spoke a word, before he did a thing, he placed his own body in the dirt with her in an act of like radical solidarity and said, I'm with her. You know, before we address anything, before we talk about anything, before we do anything, let's make it clear. I'm with her, the marginal, the oppressed one, the outcast. And, um, you know, that theme runs throughout of how, of how you see Jesus often in the Gospels leading his disciples into seemingly chance encounters with the other, whether that's the Syrophoenician woman, you know, the Gentile other, the Roman centurion, and then having an interaction with them where he points, to, he points it out to his disciples and says, look, things like, look, I've not found this kind of faith in all of Israel. You know, and, and translate that today. You know, that's what I try to get the, the reader to imagine. You know, what if the Lord, you know, what if Jesus come into your town, he called you to follow him, he did all the things. And then one day he meets a, a woman, a, a sex worker on the street, one who's not ever going to darken the door of your church building. But he says something to that effect and turns and looks at you and says, I haven't found this kind of faith, faith in the whole church. What, how's that going to impact in that moment? To hear it in, that, in our context of Jesus saying, look, God is just as present, just as active, just as concerned with the other as he is with you all. And you have as much, if not more, to learn from them as they do from you. So it's like taking salvation out of this realm of here we are swooping in to save the day. But like we need to get down with folks who are marginalized in our communities and actually learn from them. Actually let them take the reins of leadership and tell us, what, okay, what is it that you need? How is it that you're under the gun here? And how can we walk alongside of you rather than swooping in as like, you know, white saviors, you know, like we have a history of doing in, in our Western churches. Um, so, you know, getting people to kind of see it that way was, it was a lot of the hope this book. And so, so often when we do that too, we swoop in to, to, to save and then we set parameters on how that's going to happen. Right? Like, right, I remember being at a, you know, I was on staff at a church and one of the ones that, one of the many straws that eventually broke the camel's back, so to speak, was I had a friend who was in, in NA and she was, um, had been in recovery for several years. Um, just a, honestly, just a shining example of somebody, you know, climbing out of that hellhole of addiction and they'd lost the place they were meeting for NA. And so she came to me and said, could we meet at your church? And I'm like, absolutely. Let's go talk to my boss, the senior pastor about it. Having never in a million years thinking that he would have an issue with that. And he shot me down on the spot. And I was like, okay, I don't understand this. Explain this to me. And the attitude towards addicts was, you know, it was and is, there's other places for them to go. Well, the truth was there wasn't. and there was this 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 golden opportunity to actually act like Jesus in that moment, open the doors of your church, 
to let some some people who are struggling with addiction come in and have some some place of refuge, and uh, they couldn't do it, you know. I, I, and I've, I I see that attitude it, certainly in certainly in a certain brand of Christian church. I see I do see some mainline denominations being a little bit more forward thinking in this. Um, I would. But there's a there's there's this sort of strain of moral high groundism. Is that a thing, John? That I make that up? Moral high groundism. If, if it's made up, it sounds really good. So right, yeah. and this we'll, you know this we'll, guy we'll, that I'm talking about was like, listen, if they want to you know start like a celebrate recovery program, we could do that because that that that's that's like twelve steps with Jesus, you know. Well, sadly, AA and NA were based out of a more religious. Oh, they didn't know the John. They didn't. They 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 didn't say Jesus. They said higher oh, power. Right. Yeah. They were, yeah. They were overpowered by over over overpowered by you know like a celebrate recovery type program. Right. Yeah, I, I don't. But, I don't have a, an issue with that. With any of their, I don't have an issue with no. the program per se. If it's helpful, it's helpful. Great. But I'm looking for and hoping for. I, don't know, I guess a little more open mindedness from people in how we meet these needs. That I don't think a lot of people in the church really have an idea how how great that need is until it, maybe it hits home. But in your part of Southern Ohio, which we always just call Northern Kentucky, <laughs> that's, uh, that, that has to be something that everyone's very well aware of, I would assume. Yeah, you would assume so. And, and they are, you know, they're, they're aware of the problem. Uh, but even here where it's been so prevalent, where we have in some respects such a large continuum of care as far as clinical responses to it, there's still a lot of churches setting it out. And that, that's what this book has grown out of, is, is my work following the face of addiction to actually work with people, you know, on a con- you know whether it's congregations or, or individuals, to say, here's how you can get plugged into this. Here's how you can take your faith and, and make it practical. And uh, yeah, you would think more would be, but there are still many that are setting it out that are just kind of waiting for this to pass, thinking this is somebody else's problem. They can handle this. We, we're, we're taking care of the care of souls, you know, kind of thing not being really in the trenches, you know, with, with the folks who are suffering through this. Uh, so I'm trying to change that, but it, it's, it's a slow work, man. For, for yeah, no, I, well, I, sadly, um, we, and, you know, I'm going to call out people on the left a little bit because, you know, it's, it's super easy to call the people out on the right because they, they, yeah, they just like want all this low hanging. They want fruit. all this to be criminalized. <laughs> it's just drugs are, if you're a drug addict, you're a criminal, period. It's pretty. It's it's almost to the point where it's almost like a caricature of of the the right side of politics. But the left has done nothing to work with ideas of decri- decriminalizing drugs, except in very small areas. Uh, they are very very silent, and so where I think there's a lot of like a lot of hope and chance for a specific political party, if you want to talk about it that way. Uh, to maybe make a difference, they they don't because it's it's not it's not a winning point for them either. So they're not going to talk about it. And unfortunately, even progressive churches, it's it's problematic for them too. To the point where I, I believe there's a point where you talk about like a, it's not even really a faith based, but I believe there's religious people like setting up a place where they can go do needle exchanges, right? To the point where. It's because it's even remotely connected to any kind of faith-based orga- organization. There's a fear that that this I, it's not safe. I can't come here because there it's it's got to be a trap. It's got to be they they want me to come in, so I'm going to get in trouble. 
And it takes a lot of work and a lot of time to let people know that these needle exchange programs are actually there to help them and save them, right? Yeah, it's, it's true. It's a good point. You know, th- those who are doing work in this space between these two worlds are mostly, yes, progressive circles. But like you said, they are small pockets. There, there's, there's nothing large scale. And so when we talk about politics and we talk about left and right, yeah, I would agree, state level, federal level, no one on either side is really doing too much. You know, I, I joke sometimes, but it's like between Republicans and Democrats, you know, I think there's two things they always agree on. One's capitalism and the other is war. <laughs> you know, there's always, there's always money and support for these things on both sides of the aisle. And unfortunately, that includes the war on drugs. We're, we're, big, on, we're big on war in America. You know, we, we, we almost can't think of solving a problem without framing it in terms of warfare and violence. You know, we got the war on poverty, we got the war on drugs, whatever it is. You know, we, we, we view everything in this, in this way. And yeah, left and right often, often unite around that. So trying to, um, trying to bridge that gap is, is the hope here to take it out of the realm of just small pockets of socially progressive believers to also say, hey, for you on more on the right, the conservative side, there's there's a way you can do this. There's a way you can do this and feel good about it and feel safe about it if that's what you need in the beginning. And I really try to throw that line in the book of like sounding a, a prophetic call on one hand, challenging, confronting, but also being very kind of pastoral on the other, trying to gently lead. Um, but if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on this side because when you know 100,000 plus people are dying, prematurely every year, you know, that's a little more important than, uh, you know, the elderly lady in the pew, her sensibilities. If I got to, if I fail, if I fail to dance around all the toes, uh, I'm sorry, but people are dying, you know, and that's, that's important. No, it's a, it's a, it's interesting. So what, what is your take? And, you know, John and I, well, all three of us were discussing before we started recording, say like the the state of Oregon going a little farther with, um, legalization and or decriminalization of drugs in your estimation is that is that a good move forward or are you cautious cautious about like what the results of that might be yeah i mean i I'm, I'm in favor i'm a fan i'm a fan of decriminalization across the board um i think in a place like america where it's so piecemeal and sporadic i think there's a lot of things to consider i think if the whole country just tomorrow just dropped it you know dropped the whole war on drugs completely and said hey it's a free-for-all have at it i think we would be looking at more problems in the, in the immediate future than we would solutions because we're, we're all conditioned with a certain mentality uh, that there, there's not funding and supports in place, you know, for folks like, like who do have an addiction. So if we just dropped it all, you know, the curtain overnight, I, I think that's going to cause problems. But I think with measured steps like the state of Oregon is taking, yes, I'm absolutely in favor and a fan of it. And I hope they're tracking their results. And I hope we're hearing good things coming out of that. Because all the precedents we have currently in other c- countries like Portugal and the Netherlands, who have taken a wide scale harm reduction approach as a social policy model, okay, not just grassroots efforts by, by concerned citizens and groups, but at the policy level. Um, they're showing great results in terms of reduced crime, reduced rates of, of drug use, even just, just even recreational use. People are not using more because that's 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 the you know that's what people fear. Yeah, yeah. They're always like, it's just going to be a free for all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So absolutely, I'm in favor, and I, I look forward to see what comes of it. But even with because uh, it seems like, and, I, and this is anecdotal. Someone, I, I'm sure someone's done the research on this. But even in states where, say, something is seem, now seemingly benign as marijuana, right, has been largely has been legalized even recreationally in California and Oregon and other places. It seemed like they had a, an uptick in the beginning, you know, as those 
you know, because so much of that sort of prohibition culture is baked in. It's like all of a sudden you've, you've just taken something that was, you know, that was off limits and you've made it available. And people probably at first went, oh man, I can now have that. But I, it seems like there was a, you know, in the, in, in the immediate aftermath, a large uptick in usage. And then it seems like it's leveled up. John was telling me that California is already like dispensaries are closing. Like, like it was a, it was a gold rush to open dispensaries because it seemed like there was this infinite market of people who were, who were, who were there. And all of a sudden they've, they found, no, you can saturate that market too. And it's not an So they're, you were, that was your saying, John, they were like dispensaries, even Eureka, like they, they opened up like 30 dispensaries, it seems like, <laughs> within like, you know, a year. And, a good a good number of those are failing, and, and, and what we see long term, right, is not necessarily that they're failing. Yes, they're failing because there was a saturation to the market, but they're also failing because they're not willing to do it correctly. They're not willing to market correctly. They're not willing to create a safe environment. So the ones that seem to be lasting are the ones that are open, welcoming, safe, reputable. The product that you're getting, you know, is going to be solid and, and, and across the board, even, right? It's not going to be like bad this day, good this day. Those are the ones that are standing out. And I think that's the same thing with, uh, with legalization. And legalization or non, or, or, or decriminalizing, I think is, is a very like, I, I well, think I mean, we, I think we want to, I think we want to lean. Well, I think we would like to lean towards decriminalization because I think that's the, a better version of what they're talking about. But, if you look at the model of even California, right, and correct, correct me if I'm wrong, Josh or Johnny, the one, but I mean, California started with decriminalization. They didn't go full blown legalization. They started with, right, so, we're just not going to, we're just no longer going to prosecute people for simple possession of, of a controlled substance under a certain amount. So yeah, so we, we started with like the two, uh, proposition 215, which is meant you could, you could, not, you could legally buy marijuana for medical use, right? But under that umbrella, how that turned into a bit of a joke. Uh, you you were you really just weren't going to be like attacked for having marijuana on you, not in the same way you were, say, 15, 20 years ago or even longer back. So I think decriminalization is a good step, and uh, it's I, I understand it's just wording, and I understand that kind of to the point that, that they are the same thing, I guess, legalization or decriminalization, but. Correct me if I'm wrong, Josh. I, I think that one of the first steps we want to do is to separate this idea that every time you find a drug addict, they, they are just flat, un, undeniably a criminal. And that's something that we need to, that's, that's part of this that we need to break. Correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and, and again, with the focus of the book, that's, that's where a lot of the faith community can really come in because, you know, historically, people of faith, churches, communities of faith are the ones who tell the stories who set the tone for how we view our neighbor, right? We really have that, that influence. Even though Christianity is on the decline in America, we still have that influence that can be wielded for good or for evil, as we often see. But yeah, so that, that's where I focus a lot, especially in the, the folks in the, the congregations I work with, is, is just changing that perspective, to see the humanity, to see the Imago Dei, you know, in individuals. Because, and the facts bear it out. The facts of the matter are, most people who use drugs don't have a problem with it. They can use recreationally, or those who develop do develop somewhat of a dependence, they grow out of it. A lot of people just grow out of it as they, they, they grow. Um, and uh, that's, that's something we have to look at as well. The overdose crisis is a bit of a thing in itself when it comes to like addiction. So I, I kind of separate them a little bit. They are intertwined, 
But addiction, you know, the addiction epidemic in Western society is one thing as it relates to the mental health crisis. The overdose crisis is closely related, but it's also unique because it's driven, again, by the proliferation of fentanyl in the drug supply. It is driven by the war on drugs, which has just made it so risky for anybody, whether they have a problem or not, substance use, to even pick anything up and use it for whatever reason. So it's like, it's like the patient's bleeding out. You know, there might be co-occurring disorders. There might be other things underneath the surface that we need to work on. But when a patient's bleeding out and they come into the ER, first thing you got to do is stop the bleeding. And the overdose crisis represents that. Our nation is bleeding out. And it's due to all these different contributing factors. Yeah, we need to talk about society. We need to talk about the supports. We need to talk about addiction and all these things. But first, we got to stop the bleeding. And that starts with a lot, changing people's perspectives so they can see that, you know, folks who use drugs are just like you and me. You know, they're sitting in the pews and saying amen, just like the other, you know, the others are. So we've got to, we've got to somehow cross that divide. So I'd like to, I'd, want to ask this question because there's a lot of people like me who feel like there's nothing me as an individual can do, right? Um, I see the, the drug crisis around me. Um, I see the, the police coming and, and, and grabbing these people and citing them, right? Because I, you know, and I can't speak for any other area than ours, but this, this type of, and again, it's in very large air quotes, this criminal activity is not jailable, right? So it's a sight and release type thing, right? So it's super easy to get jaded because the person that has this problem who creates a problem for you, either in your business or in your environment, they get talked to, maybe even put in a police car, but they're back on the street the next day. So um, it's super easy to get jaded. Like there's nothing you can do. There's no way you can help because these people have a problem that's beyond your ability to do anything. But it, like you say, it's, it's got to start with a grassroots situation, a program that's going to start from local and then can expand from there. Uh, if you're not willing to help the people within your own community, you're definitely not going to be willing to help the people within your county or within your state or within the country. So what is something we can do within our community to start this change of perspective on these people. Specifically, because like you said, there's there's drug use within our church. There's drug use within our your 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 employer, right? That's that's happening. And like you said, this is happening day in, day out. But the, the people who are seen and objectified or belittled or whatever you want to call are, are the marginalized, the homeless community, the drug addict community. So what do we do? in our community as the first steps to become part of the help as opposed to part of the problem. Yeah, well, I mean we gotta find ways to spend we gotta start spending more time with people at at the margins. Right? That's a, that's that's the first thing Jesus did. You know, he went out to the margins. And that's where the, the message of the kingdom was well received. You know, it wasn't received in the centers of power, you know, with those with social privilege and status. And uh, you know, for all our talk about it, you know, even in like the progressive Christian circles and, and, and the left side and the deconstruction camp, there's, there's not a whole lot of that really going on. You know what I mean? Not in our communities, not, not face to face, not down and dirty. You know what I mean? So, you know, we've got to, we've got to get to know people to the extent that they'll even trust us, that they'll hear us speak and, 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 real, and they'll hear nonviolent language. You know, we won't be talking about addicts. We'll be talking about people who use drugs 
and always keeping in view people, 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 right? And um, listen and learn, you know, and that, that's from the people with lived experience first and foremost. You know, we encourage churches here. I've done it myself. We, we set up uh, learning campaigns and, and listening panels where we invite people who use drugs or those in recovery to sit on a panel and we invite clergy, we invite pastors, we invite church leaders to come and sit and listen and they tell their story. And then they, they, they talk about how the church has either helped them or hurt them along the way. And then they can ask questions, but they're listening, right? And we're not here to teach. We're here to listen and learn and see, you know, from the, from the perspective of the marginalized, you know, the empire looks different from the margins. You know, it doesn't, it's not always shiny and pretty and nice and new uh, from the people who are really crushing, crushed under the weight of a lot of these social policies and practices that just bear keep them down. So we got to get familiar enough with people in our communities. We got to keep this real and keep it local and keep it practical in our communities who have a perspective on life that is different, that is informed from underneath. And uh, that alone will begin to change the whole game. You know, if, if we're willing to do that, I think. And then, you know, and then read books, you know, read books from people like professionals like Gabor Mate, you know, who's doing so much enlightening research on addiction, the connections between addiction and trauma and seeing how so much of this arises out of adverse childhood experiences that are never resolved in a person's life and, and uh, what the hell that ends up manifesting in, in, in their world. Uh, you know, things that generate compassion, you know, for folks that, 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 that comes from the, the root of that word means to suffer with you know, with and passion to suffer with. And, you know, you can't suffer with a person. You know, we, we don't understand each other to begin with. You know, we're separated by this miles of subjective experience and perception between us, you know, so we've got to get inside a person's world and try to see it from their vantage point as much as possible. When we begin to understand what they're going through, where they've come from, then we can actually experience what I think Jesus demonstrated a lot when he, when he saw someone, you know, he saw them. And he was moved with compassion. And then he acted, right? We don't want to just go out there blindly, swinging around, doing a bunch of churchy things, starting programs and this and that, when we don't know. <laughs> we can let everything we're doing be informed by the wisdom of the other. That, and that's what I try yeah. to emphasize throughout the book. Yeah. One of the simplest things I did, you know, like I said, within our rural area, there's, there's, there's a major drug problem within our rural area. Um, I don't have to go more than a block from anywhere to see... Uh, the issue. Uh, the homeless community within our area is very, very high. The drug, the drug addiction, the overdose rate in this area is very high. And the only thing I could think to do to start changing my view of these people was to literally just learn their first name. And so, it doesn't mean that when I go out to talk, you know, because in my place of business, uh, there's a lot of you know, panhandling, asking for money. Uh, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's not, it's not acceptable within that area. Uh, but it doesn't mean I have to go out and yell at them and tell them to get off the property. Um, so I have learned, tried to learn some of their names. So I go out and I call them by name. I was like, Hey, you know, unfortunately you can't be here. I, I'm going to need you to move on. And so I've personally witnessed one. And I'm not saying that I made any difference other than I know his name and I can see a change in him that something happened, right? I didn't do it, but I at least know him to the point where I can recognize that something has changed in him and he's becoming, something's happened, right? Uh, he's gone through some kind of change. He's, he's in a better place. 
And but then at the same time, I've, I have another one that we that I talk to on a regular basis, and he's not. He's not in a better place. If if, if anything, he's in a worse place. But it doesn't mean that I don't stop calling him by his name when I go up and talk to him. Even in those days where he, I'm not sure he knows what his name is, right? I still go approach him. I call him by name, you know, say, hey, hey, buddy, I understand that you, you can't, you're, you're trying to get some money, but unfortunately you just can't do that here. I just need you to move along. And it's something as simple as that, something as simple as just changing your mindset on that they, uh, it, there's someone that you just say, hey, you get off the property to, hey, and you use their name, you have a conversation, maybe even walk off the property with them, right? So they know that you're not being, you're not being dismissive, but at the same time, you're being kind of forceful that this can't happen right here, but you understand that, that they're a human being. And that's, I think that's a good starting point. Well, that seems like that balance that needs to be struck, doesn't it? Because that, that might be the pushback you get from the law and order types as well. If we just let all this go, we're just being easy on people. And that's not really what we're saying, right? I mean, there's, um, there's a, just because you humanize somebody and treat them with dignity and respect doesn't mean you're like, you know, um, you're necessarily condoning all their choices. But a lot of times those choices have been made for them. And a lot of times if we get beyond the two dimensional caricatures we have of people, we, and we might actually hear a story and find out what's going on. So that's, that's to me what is important about a book like yours. What's so important about, um, educating ourselves on these topics. Cause I, as I said from the beginning, it's just not a topic I'm very familiar with. And just like I had to get familiar with the LGBTQIA, you know, plus there, I had to get, I had to get immersed in, in those communities to find out what the problems were inside of those communities and have to educate myself around, around issues of transgender folks and people of color. We have to do the same thing inside of these circles or we'll just be, like you said, kind of willy-nilly going out trying to create programs that, that don't actually accomplish anything, right? Absolutely. You'd be, you'd be surprised, you know, just treating another person like a human being, what that does for them. And yeah, they, they may, it may be too late. It may be too far gone. Who knows? I think you just said um, a lot of people's choices are made for them. I think that's very profound. And I, don't th- I think we don't understand how true that is. None of us are as free in our wills as we think we are. You know, we've all been born into situations that have, have made certain choices for us right out the gate. You know, and then there are pressures yeah, from society, there's history, there's experience, there's all sorts of things going into a person's life. And especially those who are just racked with trauma, with racked with all kinds of things that I haven't been. I've been relatively lucky, relatively unscathed. You know, that's the definition of privilege. It's not that you're better than anybody else. It's not that you haven't gone through hard things and you haven't overcome them yourself. But, but compared to a lot of folks, I've got the wind at my back where they've got the wind at their, in their face. And that makes a huge difference over the course of 20, 30 years. And, you know, so to, to sit on a high horse and judge people and act like we know what they need. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, when you got to climb the ladder, you know, I I remember Andy Stanley of all people saying this, he was talking about something else, but he was talking about, you know, know, there, there are these people in life who, who, who approach their ladder and the first five rungs have been kicked out. And then we sit there and judge them for the progress that they've made. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, that's profound. I mean, that, that is for me that I would, I would, I would tack that onto a definition of privileges. I, I haven't, I haven't had to try and leapfrog over those things. I'm like you, I'm relatively unscathed, you know, compared to people whose stories I actually take the time to hear. And I go, Jesus, you know, the fact that you're saying it all, it says a whole lot about you. So if the church is to be defined by anything, I think we need to be defined by our, our ability to be empathetic and compassionate and 
and not be withholding of things just because we think people made bad choices and so somehow it's their fault. So, well, I think we also need to be very cognizant of our history, right? I mean, you talk about the pill mills, right? As this was the easiest way to take care of people who were in pain. Um, so you look at uh, some of the, the people that are suffering with addiction or are in our home, in our homeless community, they are, they're, they're older. And so, like you say, some of this was stuff was done to them. Um, you know, unfortunately, Nat and I have family members who were brought up in this era of the pill mill, uh, where the easiest thing to do for chronic pain or potentially an injury that they couldn't fix is to just keep handing them bottles of pills. Well, as those pills dry up because we start deciding that that's bad for them, wh- where are they going to go? Because we haven't educated them in any way other than pain management through pill popping. And so when the pills are taken away from them because now they're an addict and now they're a problem on society, they're going to go where they can find what the, the medical field will not give them anymore. And so we have, we have doubled down on this and created a situation where they have to now go find their illegal substance to do what the doctors were doing for them rather than actually getting to know them as a human being and just continue to fill a prescription and fill a prescription and fill a prescription, right? I mean, it's, it's so I would go on that and say, is this, this is, there's a cause and effect. Uh, and unfortunately, our, our government and our pharmaceutical companies have created this monster in a lot of ways. Yeah, and, that, and that's really what I try to get people to see. Like, it can all be overwhelming. When you do begin to learn about all this, yeah, it can be like, whoa, you know, this huge thing is going on. There are all these moving parts and these pieces I'm just now familiarizing myself with. It can seem like a lot. And I've even talked to churches where, you know, they might come in, they want to do something, they begin to think, hear these things, consider it, then they're like, whoa, you know, we don't know what to do with all of this. Um, but it's just a simple, you know, as, you know, we're not going to change, we're not going to save the world here. We're not going to change everything. Um, the best we can do is throw our little pebble out into the pond and, and, and make a difference in a few people's lives. And if that's a few people that's real in our community, then that's all the difference in the world. I got my start in this work. And I, I mentioned this in the preface to my first book, The Face of Addiction, because I went through a time in my life that was very difficult for me. For me at the time, it was the high water mark or high water. It was my rock bottom, essentially. It wasn't a drug related thing, but it was, I was out of my depth and I couldn't find my way out of it. And there were two men who came into my life at that time who gave me the tools I needed to pull myself out of a very dark place. Both those guys were in recovery from substance use disorder. And both those guys had reached many points in their life where they would have been written off by most people in society who would have said things like, lock them up, throw away the key, Narcan them once, and then let them die. Fortunately, they found their way out and they came back with an insight into just the general human condition from, that, from their struggle, born out of their struggle, that was able to help a poor schmuck like me face down his own inner demons. And so I believe that's my conviction that informs a lot of my, my work here is that, you know, there's not a person out there with a needle in their arm right now nodding off in an alley in your county or mine who doesn't hold that same potential to change the world. So if we throw our little pebble out there, it's just by acknowledging somebody's humanity, it ripples out and it touches this one person who then, you know, God knows, you know, gets his feet back under him and goes out and does something tremendous with it. We, we don't know, but that's all we can do. And, and as people of faith, this is what makes it so easy is to speak to, to people of faith and say, you know, the framework is there. The message, the example of Jesus is there. All the arguments are stripped away here. We're not moralizing. 
We're not saving the world. We're not changing legislation, even though that's something you could get involved in. And I talk a little bit about that in the book. But we're just trying to humanize people. The society has stamped down and, and, and tossed out and said, forget about them. You know, because that's the way of Christ, <laughs> right? Well, I would that say, you know, if, if, if any, any church community who's like, okay, we obviously, the, the way that's working it isn't working or the way we're trying to make it work isn't working. I would, I would almost narrow down to three things and you can tell me if uh, these are, this is naive or not. Uh, one is to open your church and, and, and truly say that you are accepting of all people. And open the, the church to the point where you don't you don't tell them you don't bait and switch them you you don't bring them in and then ask them to change you just you just open your church accept everybody where they are as how they are no questions asked no expectations number two get involved in a needle exchange program and just be okay with that because just understand that you're saving people's lives. You're, you're not going to stop people from going and using needles. If you can, if you can offer them a place to get safe needles and exchange the bad needles to so get those out off the streets. And don't, don't look deeper than just doing that. And number three, be willing to learn and be educated about Narcan. And if that, if you're in a, in a state or a community that allows you to have Narcan on you and you can learn and see where people are in a bad place and they are, they are overdosing and you can potentially, potentially Reverse that. Learn. You know, if you're not in a state that it doesn't allow anybody, but say like a first responder to have it, I understand that's a, that's going to be a problem. You're not going to be able to do that. But if you're in an area where you can be trained individually to hold Narcan and understand what an overdose looks like, those are the three things I think is is like they're not hard steps if you're willing to just open your mind to be being acceptable and, and accept people where they are. Yeah, and that's the mantra of harm reduction. And I didn't coin this, um, is, is meeting people where they are. And that's a whole lot different from our social policies in America now. That's a whole lot different from a lot of Christians mentality. You know, we're not calling out from someplace over here and saying, you got to come up here. You know, we're, we're meeting people where they are and just giving them whatever help they need right there. Just like that, that guy on the road to Jericho, right? This good Samaritan. As John was talking, I was thinking to myself, you know, as, as rare as it is, and this is going to sound like a tenuous, like a tenuous link at best. But bear with me for a second. Um, there were some, there was, there were some church shootings, and the immediate response from everybody I knew in the church world was, "We need to have at least one person in our congregation with a gun at all times." And so, even in the church that I was on staff, uh, we had, you know, off-duty police officers. We we always had at least two or three people in, in the room at any given time with a concealed weapon permit. What if we took that same approach to drug overdose? And made sure there was at least one person in in the building at all times who had Narcan or its equivalent, and was trained in how to administer it, rather than you know be prepared for the really really rare chance somebody might come in and start shooting. You have a lot more chance somebody might come in and overdose. That seems to be a, a, a as as reasonable of a of a step to take is say you know as a church make sure there's somebody on staff who can recognize an overdose when it's happening and who could maybe take steps to 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 remedy it. Um, so churches, if you're listening, do that. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I would, I would back that up by saying, sadly, you know, in, in our County, right after there was that kind of that, those very visual, very, um, outspoken church shootings that happened, uh, our County definitely 
all of a sudden became on point, right? They had a, they had a training seminar to how to deal with a, with a church shooting. But there's, I, I can't tell you a single time where anyone's like, Hey, we have a drug epidemic in this county and we need to really get, we need to be educated on what to do when these people come into our churches. Not a single time has that ever been on the radar ever. No, well, one, like plane crashes, you know, when they, I'm not, they're, they're semi rare. Um, but when they, when they occur, they're obviously they're big news. It's a big deal. It's all of the state makes it, that makes that, that, that crisis seem a little more prescient than, um, than it, it might actually be. But the chances for you, John, in your town, especially in Eureka, <laughs> having somebody walk into a door, you know, and overdose or in the midst of an overdose is, uh, as got, it's got to be astronomically higher than oh, yeah. somebody, yeah. somebody walking in randomly with a gun and just started shooting. But I, I bet you, um, I bet you a lot of the people in those churches are, are armed and just waiting for their chance to be the, you know, the, the good guy with the gun that stops the bad guy with the gun. How, about a, the, with the, oh, how yeah. about a good guy with the, you know, with some Narcan ready to, uh, kick addiction's ass and, you know, Pull, pull someone back. So I, I don't know. I, I, I told you when I, when I, when I wrote you, Josh, that I, I felt like this was a call to arms for Christians. And I do. And I think it's a very well written one. Um, I think the, I think the challenge is, I, I just very, very well laid out. So man, I'm, I'm hopeful that this, this book will go out in the world and, and, and accomplish some really, really good things. But I have, I think it's, I think it's on point. Yeah. I, I, I would back that up. I, I believe, you know, in my response to your book, I think, and if I didn't say it, I meant to say it, was every church, this should be a prerequisite, every church should read this book. Uh, it should be part of their curriculum uh, on learning how to deal and how to how to work within harm reduction and work with the addicts in their community. Um, it's, uh, I, like you said, there are other books out there that, that they can read, but I think your book is very accessible, uh, very, um, very um, easy to read, as a, as an idea on how to step into this. And then, yeah, if they want to take it into like more of an intellectual or more curriculum based, there's, like you said, there's other books they can read, but this is a definitely, I, I, I don't see how any pastor in this country shouldn't be reading this book and using it as a way to step into and help uh, the marginalized community within their, marginalized people within their community. I, I just don't, I don't no, see how it can't help. That's the hope. And I, and I wrote it specifically for that reason. You know, the chapters are short. The, the whole book is relatively short. Uh, it's written as a conversation starter with, with questions at the end of each chapter for a, a small group or a church or just an individual to reflect on to really explore further the concepts. And then with practical suggestions at the end, based on wherever you are, here are some things that you could do if you want to do something. Right. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully it'll find its way into all the churches, every church. That's what I've heard a number of people who've read it so far say every church needs to read this. So you're lucky it'll find its way into every church. And uh, well, hopefully those people who say that will then go buy 20 copies and start handing them out. That would be great. Well, I, have, I have, I literally have pastor friends in this, in our community. I will, if they are not willing to buy the book themselves, I will buy it for them. And I have no, and, and I'm, I'll say that I'm saying that on air. If they aren't willing to buy it, uh, I will buy it for them. Uh, because that's how important I think this is. Um, we have to stop criminalizing these people. We will never save anybody if all we see them is as, as a criminal, as a lost cause, as someone who's less than us. Uh, we are all one bad situation from, from being in that, in that scenario. Um, 
from being, you know, making a, making a bad decision at a party, from making a bad decision because you're stressed at your job. I mean, we're, we, as long as drugs are accessible but not controlled, we are all, we all are on the cusp of, of being a, a statistic. And, uh, I mean, like we said earlier, you know, Oregon is going to be a really good, a really good litmus test, I think, for this country as how this can work. And we, and we have other countries we can look at who have been doing this longer and we can see the statistics that say harm reduction as opposed to criminalization works. It just, it just does. Agreed. Yeah. That's awesome. Hey, the book comes out April, what'd you say, 22nd? April the 11th. 11th. I just doubled it. I don't know why I did that. I, <laughs> I, I don't reverse numbers. I always just double them. I just double so, them. <laughs> so, April 11th. So that's not, that's not long. Hopefully, um, we will, we'll do our best to have this, this episode dropped, um, in coordination with that release. Uh, we will push it on all of our social medias and, uh, do our very, very best to, to help promote it. But man, and we'll link to all that stuff in, in the show notes and everything, obviously. But man, uh, thank you again. I appreciate you reaching out. Thanks for thanks for taking the time to come hang with us. I think the work is important and I'm excited for it, man. Thank you. No, thank you guys. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.